I want to start off with, with sharing a story that really instructed me very, very early on in my career as a therapist. It was meaningful to me. It's personally helpful to me. And um, I have entitled this Sheer for Myself to be a way of sharing with, with all of you the thoughts that go on in my head as a therapist that I don't necessarily tell my clients, but perhaps you'll see uh, what it means for a therapist to conduct therapy sessions. And I want to start off, like I said, with a story. There's a story of a great man who had little to say in life. His name was uh, Rebutkov Mavorka. He was a, a rabbi that lived um, back in the, in the end of the 18th century, in the beginning of the 19th century. He was a, a man of very little words. There's very little that we have uh, of the things that he had said and the stories about him. But at the same time, he was a person who was filled with passion and uh, intense spirituality. And so the story goes that a man came to him once and said to him that he would like him to beseech the heavens. He wants him to pray for his wife who had been in labor for many, many hours, and the doctors had said that the prognosis wasn't good. And the, the, the man at his wit's end went to the rabbi and said, Rabbi, can you pray for my wife that, uh, that she turns out to be healthy and that the child that is uh, waiting to be born should be born healthily? And the, and the rabbi turned and responded and said, I, I will, and he turned to the corner and he prayed for a little bit and he turned back and he said, I can feel that in heaven there's no, there's no real possibility for your wife and there's really nothing I can do, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry. And the man threw himself down at the rabbi's feet and said, you know, please, please, this is my whole life, my whole life is my wife and my, my whole life is the possibility of having children and the doctors are saying that, that they're going to die, and I, I, I need you to, to just whatever, give me something I can do, give me some kind of way I can intervene into heaven, and please. And, and uh, it's because of work, and the rabbi turned around and said, I'm sorry, there's really nothing I can do. And very dejectedly, the man turned around and left. And as he's getting back on his horse and, and buggy to go back to wherever he came from, he hears footsteps running behind him. And... The, the tzaddik, the rabbi, is chasing him and is asking him to please wait a minute. And he catches up to him and he catches his breath. And the man says to the rabbi, Rabbi, what, what, what would you like? What? The rabbi said, you know, I, I told you that there's nothing I can do for you. And I was wrong. There's one thing I, I could do for you. There's one thing I didn't do for you. And I'm remiss. I'm sorry. I didn't do this for you. But I, would you please allow me, give me a few minutes to just hold your hand and cry with you. And with that, the two of them, the rabbi and this man, sat down on the floor, weeping and bawling and crying. In some versions of the story, this is what opens up the gates of heaven, and the man went home, and his wife survived, and a beautiful child was born. In other versions of the story, which is the way I initially first heard the story, is the man left, and we don't know what happened. Presumably, his wife and, and child died. What strikes me about this story is the capacity for the human heart to not just listen, 
but and be empathic to someone else. And what that means for us when we need to cry, and what that means for us when we need to lend our ears and lend our tears to someone else. When I say it was instructive to me as a therapist, I don't think that there's anything else that I've learned about being a therapist that's any greater than that story. That somehow this calling that I have in life, this passion for modern psychology, really boils down to a very significant responsibility for me to listen to people. And I want to share with you some of the things I think about when I listen. And hopefully for each and every one of us who are not quote-unquote professional listeners, we could, we could recognize, and especially now during this time of Elul, as we get closer to the, the, the days of, as one person called it to me recently, the days of reckoning, um, to try to think a little bit about what it means to do teshuva, what it means to repent in a, in a deeper sense, in a healthy sense. There's many of us that have been uh, exposed to conventional Judaism experience much of these days as days of fear and toxicity and shame and guilt. And what is a therapist if not for someone who tries to heal shame? And so you might ask, perhaps going to therapy is the antithesis or the opposite of teshuva. When I assess people, when I meet people, and I'm asked to help them discover something that can lead them out of the, the sometimes terrible situations that they're in, there are basically three levels of depth that I, that, I, that I assess. There's three paradigms or three aspects of life, and if you hear me out, you'll understand what I mean. The first thing that I do is I look to see what is the functionality of a person, meaning how successful are they at life? How successful are they at pulling off all of the productive things that they have, uh, the responsibilities they have, the dreams, the vision? How successful are they? Within that is also the question, not so much about success, but what is their effort like? Are they disciplined? Are they motivated? Do they feel as if they're not getting to where they need to get to and they're not able to pull the trigger on uh, different things in life? But all of those things are what I put into the category of functionality, and that is how well are you doing. Separate from that, I look at meaning. And meaning really is not about how well are you doing, but it, meaning has more to do with your mood. How meaningful is your life? How much do you feel that you experience life in a healthy way, in a positive way? How much are you enjoying life? Included in that, I also look for relationships. Are your relationships that you have feeding you? Are the relationships that you have making you feel better about yourself? Are you growing? <clears throat> in your relationships, specifically, not so much can you learn how to be patient, but how much do the relationships that you have in life satiate you? How much do you feel better about yourself because of the relationships that you're in? So I put meaning and relationship in the same category. It's not exactly the same thing, but meaning and relationship simply are, do I value 
my personality and the things that I have in my life because they are mine. And in that paradigm, I'm not so much looking at how successful are you. I'm looking at how much do the things you have in life, the experiences you have in life, move you. And then, of course, there's a, a, an area of life that's almost impossible to put into words, and so it requires a lot of work and it requires a lot of uh, intuition. I'm looking to see what is your inherent self-purpose. And I'm specifically not saying inherent self-value, because the word value is really a very consumeristic word. But I'm looking to know what is the, the, in the deepest place within your relationship with yourself, how much do you feel that your life is purposeful? And I want to here make a distinction between mission and purpose. Mission is functionality. I have a mission in life. I need to fulfill the mission. I have responsibilities in life. I need to fulfill my responsibilities and complete my mission. In our religion, we talk very much about the need to accomplish, to do, to act, to act the right way, to avoid certain behaviors that are wrong. And very often, we tend to get mixed up between the word mission and the word purpose. And here I want to make the distinction. Inherent self-purpose means does I have the capacity to feel that I am alive simply because God wants me to be alive. I am purposeful, I am meaningful because I exist. That I exist is a testament to my inherent self-purpose. In other words, if you were to ask the question, why did God create me? The answer is because he wanted to. And why did he want to? Because God desired me. Nothing more. Nothing more. In fact, you can't even ask the question, why did God create me? It's almost a misnomer. There's no logical reason why God created me. God created me because I am a projection of his desire. Nothing more, but also nothing less. And so when I'm assessing people, I'm looking to see where is their inherent self-purpose. Where does a person rate themselves on feeling purposeful in life? And of course, like I said before, therapists, our job is to treat shame. What is the difference between talking to a rabbi, a friend, a parent, a sibling, a life coach, and speaking to a therapist, the significant difference is a therapist is there to try to help us overcome and heal from shame. And so the question for me as we enter into these days of Elul is, is Elul a time for me to calculate how well I have performed in my life? Is all of the days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur what we call the days of judgment. Is all of that about looking to see my functionality? Is God looking at my functionality? Is God looking at my relationships? Is God looking at how well I appreciate my things? Or is God looking at, in the deepest way, how much I can see myself with the eyes that he sees me? Because for the most of us, myself included, 
most of what we are aware of in our discussions with ourselves and our relationships with ourselves have to do with how well I function. If you've heard of um, what's called the negativity bias, they've been able to prove physiologically that our brains encode negative information about ourselves and about the world five times more than we encode positive things, which means it's much, much more likely for us to be pessimists than to be optimists. And I think that the paradigm shift that I would like to introduce, even though it might not be a chiddush, it might not be anything novel for us, but the paradigm shift specifically in the world of mental health, specifically in the world of relating to ourselves, is we want to ask the question, do I want to reconnect to God simply through the functionality of what I need to do, which of course is important, or do I want to try on God's eyeballs? And if I want to try on God's eyeballs, then the picture of what I'm going to see in myself is going to be completely different. Because God's eyeballs start with inherent self-purpose. In a few weeks from now, we're going to read in the Torah the words, I'll say them into, I'll say them in Hebrew and I'll translate them into English. We say, we're going to say, The hidden things are for God and the revealed things are for us and our children. And somehow, since I was a little kid, those words really struck me and I've thought about them a lot. And this is my poetic uh, interpretation of those words. People see our behavior, our behaviors. We ourselves see our functionality, we see our behaviors. And when we look at our behaviors, the externalities of our lives, the expression of things in our lives, we can infer from them about our intentions and our motivations. And so if I see you do something, I infer from there whatever I infer about who you are. And when you see me, you do the same. And in fact, unless you become uh, adept at really being self-aware, we look at our behaviors and infer from things about ourselves as well. But when Hashem looks at our behaviors, when God looks at our behaviors, God starts within our inner world. He starts with the essence of what we are, the beauty of what we are. That magnificent eyes look at us and see us, each and every one of us individually, as being more beautiful than the Swiss Alps or the Grand Canyon. And so when God looks at me, God begins with the inner world, and from there he traces everything that I do upwards to my intentions and my, vo my motivations and my actions. He sees all of my actions from within the context of knowing the entire picture, not just of who I am, but of everything I've been through in my life. I'll tell you another story. There's another tzaddik, another rabbi, who lived a little bit uh, prior to Rabbi Yitzhak Mavorka. Many of you might know his name. He's known as the Noim Melech, the Rebbe Reb Melech. His last name was Weissblum, Rebbe Melech Weissblum. He lived in the 18th century. And every year he would tell a story of a, of a man who had no money, really very poverty-stricken, without, uh, without much uh, to his name. 
And every year would come around the time of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and, and we, uh, we Jews, of course, are odd like every other culture in the world. And we have this tradition of taking live chickens and swinging it over our heads. Um, if you think about it, it's just laughable. <clears throat> and this man had no money to perform this minhag called kaparas, the shlug kaparas. That's to, we believe somehow that uh, you can transfer some of your sins onto a live animal. Um, there are other religions that have similar kinds of things. Or if you don't have money, of course, you, if you don't have uh, a, a live chicken, you could use a live animal. So this man had no money. What to his name? And, and this is the story the Rebbe the rabbi would say over every year. He would say there was once a man who was poor, he had no money, and every year would come time to Shlach Kaparis. He would write a list of all the sins that he would, could recall from over the year on one piece of paper. And then he would take a separate piece of paper, and he'd write a list of all the ways that, ha, that God has made his life difficult over the last year. Everything that he suffered through whether it was addiction, whether it was depression, whether it was anxiety, he would take every last bit of every disappointment that he could dredge up in his consciousness over the air and write it down on a separate piece of paper. And he would take the piece of paper that had all of his sins on it, and he would take the piece of paper of all of the way God had sinned him, and he'd raise them over his head, look up to heaven, and he would say, No, God, we both have something to forgive each other about this year. And he would swing both lists over his head and he'd burn the papers. And every year the Naim Melech would say over this story, he'd repeat this story and he would say, Ah, could you imagine if we can do this minhag of Kaparas with such authenticity, with such beauty? Teshuva, repentance, repentance is not a, is not a good word to describe teshuva. Teshuva is about discovering the way that Hashem looks at me, the eyes of love and the beauty that He sees in me when He looks at me. It's about, it's about really what Chazkenu is about. You know, years ago, I, I, I grappled with what is the distinction between uh, psycho, psychological wisdom and, and the wisdom of the Torah. And as the years have gone by, I, I've, I've become more and more convinced that there's no distinction. When a person is in pain and a person suffers, and a person is ready to do that, that, that act of killing themselves, that last moment before a person does, if there's an inkling of feeling, you know, I really want life, and there's somehow a way to make a turnaround in that moment, in that lowest moment of a person's life, that's called teshuva. Teshuva is the yearning for and the growth towards seeing ourselves with the same compassion, love, and beauty that Hashem sees me. It's about reclaiming our rightful place in our own eyes, in our relationships, and in our actions. So if there's one thing that I would, I, I am humbled and honored to share, it's this message that going to psychotherapy is an act of tshuva. In fact, I would say it's the greatest act of tshuva a person can do. Not because it might bring you a step closer to becoming a, a, a more religious. It's much larger than that. Teshuva is about breaking out of the smallness that I see myself with, being able to see myself with the eyes of God, of openness, of idealism, of vision, of, of dreaming for something better, 
and taking steps towards it. And so I'm going to end my my sharing for now. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to do this. My, um, Like I said, I would say that for the most part, I spend my days listening to people, and whenever I get an, op- uh, an opportunity to share my own reflections, it's very meaningful to me. It's almost like a, um, a pressure valve that I get to open and share. And my hope and prayer for all of us, myself included, is that with whatever smallness we see ourselves in, with whatever pain any of us have ever experienced in life, that we, we, can, we can be healers. I'm sorry, we can be healers in our lives by simply recognizing that the sum total of all the pain that exists in the world doesn't touch an ounce of the beauty of what we can be and really internally what we are. I'm going to share something personal about about being a therapist, um, something I think about every year. You know, I, I, uh, I'm i a chazan in, in shul. I lead, I lead the services very often on, uh, on, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And therapists always have discussions about whether or not they pray for their clients and, and uh, whether or not they should or shouldn't. And... Um, so it's a discussion, and we can maybe have that at a different time about why it's even a question. But I show up every year at Shoshani and Kipper, and I bring my calendar with me into shul. Um, it's in my talis bag usually, and I, I don't really take it out. But in a certain way, you know, there, there, there are two reasons why I do that. Um, one of them is because I feel like saying to God, you know, I don't know what you're thinking about me. I don't know what in what way you're seeing me, but I, I want to be able to uh, share something that I that I uh, have invested my life in, which is the people that have given their stories to me. And so, you know, allow this to, to be a, a zechus for me. But separately than that, and this is really what I, what I wanted to get to, every person myself included, that has ever seen a therapist, uh, the, the, the purpose of, of, of or one of the ways that therapy works is confidentiality. And um, therapist really needs to make each of us feel a certain kind of mutual and exclusive um, caring. That therapist makes me feel special and that I have time alone to myself to work out whatever I need to work out. And um, that's what we experience when we are patients in therapy. And that is true of really all pain and all crisis. All kinds of pain and crisis in life makes us feel um, the need to kind of turn inwards. And we have a support group here, which is fantastic and phenomenal, but the flip side is is that each of, each of us individually struggles in our own ways with whatever kinds of suffering and pain we, we, we have. But a therapist sees anywhere between, could be anywhere between 20 to 35 people a week. And so that's 20 to 35 different stories of people that are unique and special and whose pain is completely their own. And so what do we as therapists, how do we as therapists think of that almost like strange paradox that the patient feels a tremendous sense of uniqueness but the therapist sees 25 
or 30 people a week. And there's always a, an open uh, window. The door keeps going in and out, and uh, people come and go. And so I'm, I'm sharing this. I, I just off the cuff. It's something I think about every year around this time, that we as therapists have the opportunity to see every single person's story and put it together in a, in a real, like, tapestry that's woven out of everybody's stories and turn back to Hashem and recognize that Hashem does the same thing. Lahavdal, I mean, I was putting myself into God's category, to my own narcissism, but um, that Hashem has the capacity to see each and every one of us as individuals and make each and every one of us feel like individuals and at the same time take the, the, the klal, the tzibor, the community, the entirety of humanity and weave a tapestry of each and every one of us' stories to me is something that's just beautiful, artistic, and magnificent.